This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Say hello, everyone. If we were gathering in person, we'd start by acknowledging the Indigenous territory we were holding the event on. However, because we are in the midst of a global pandemic and are physically distancing, each member of today's panel will acknowledge the territory they're on. We would also like to encourage the audience to acknowledge the Indigenous territory you're on through the chat function. I'll start us off by saying that I'm joining you from the unceded territory of the Snenemuk Nation in what is now known as British Columbia, Canada. Over to Sarah, Gladys, and Ashley. Hi, everyone. I am joining today from Brooklyn, New York, Lenape Traditional Territory. Good morning, everybody. I'm Gladys Raddick, and I'm speaking from Terrace, B.C., Simshian Territory. Hi, everyone. My name is Ashley Hammers, and I'm speaking from the Fort Mojave Indian Tribal Territory. And do we have any chat coming in? Can we see anybody who's uh, in other territories? Keep those coming in if you know them. Um, and what I'll do to start us off today is I will introduce um, everybody who's taking part. I'll start with narrators, uh, the people whose stories appear in the book, How We Go Home. Narrator Gladys Raddick from the Gitsan of Wet'suwet'en Nation is a tireless, grassroots Gladys's niece, Tamara, who you can see in the picture behind her, went missing at age 22 along the notorious Highway of Tears in BC. This inspired Gladys to become a community activist and eventually a family advocate for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in Canada. Gladys is a co-founder of Walk for Justice, an organization created to fight for the families and all women who went missing or were found murdered. Gladys has crossed the country seven times in her work with Walk for Justice and has spoken to thousands of families whose lives have been impacted by violence perpetrated against Indigenous women and girls. Narrator Ashley Hemmers is an enrolled member of the Fort Mojave Indian Tribe, whose reservation spans the states of California, Arizona, and Nevada. Ashley is a strategic specialist in multi-state, cross-jurisdictional development and management of tribal economies. She holds over 10 years of experience in tribal enterprising, including fiscal and capital wealth strategies. In addition to capital projects and operational development, Ashley is experienced in grants administration and administrative oversight in the areas of telecommunications, tribal law, critical infrastructure, emergency management, public safety, healthcare, systems of care, 
education, intervention, and community relations. She has worked to strengthen tribal federal and tribal state partnerships by developing strategic models of performance for service areas within the tribal organizational structure. Ashley has a BA from Yale University and a graduate certificate in nonprofit management and master's of public administration from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now over to our editor, uh, Sarah Sinclair. Sarah is an oral historian, writer, and educator of Creole Ojibwe and settler descent. Sarah teaches in the Oral History Master's Program at Columbia University. She has contributed to the Columbia Center for Oral History Research's COVID-19 Oral History, Narrative and Memory Archive, Obama Presidency Oral History, and Robert Rauschenberg Oral History Project. She has conducted oral histories for the Whitney Museum of American Art, the New York City Department of Environmental Protection, and the International Labor Organization, among others. Sarah is co-editor of Robert Rauschenberg, an oral history published with Columbia University Press in 2019. Curriculum specialist Suzanne Mathot that's me, is the author of the nonfiction book, Legacy, Trauma, Story, and Indigenous Healing, co-author of the Grade 11 textbook, Aboriginal Beliefs, Values, and Aspirations, and a contributor to Scholastic's Take Action series of elementary classroom resource books. I'm a social historian and speaker on human rights, pedagogy, Indigenous literatures, Indigenous worldviews, Indigenous approaches to health and wellness, trauma and healing informed practice, and decolonization. I'm a former classroom teacher, grades four to 10, an adult literacy practitioner, and I now work as an education consultant designing curriculum for books like these and uh, facilitating change making sessions for the education, healthcare, environmental, and museum sectors. Uh, I am a Sinewachi Nehio, uh, or Rocky Mountain Cree, and I'm of mixed Indigenous and European heritage. So I want to see some clapping uh, from the participants. <laughs> um, not for me, for everyone else who has joined us today. I'm going to hand the mic over to Sarah, um, because although they're not appearing on the panel, there are a few people that made critical, critical um, contributions to the book, and we do want to name them uh, specifically. So Sarah. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Um, as Suzanne said, um, there were many people who participated um, in coming to this moment and arriving at this moment. Um, and I'm not going to name everybody now, but I do want to name a particular, um, a couple of particular contributors in particular. Um, one, Roseanne Gooding Silverwood, who wrote the incredible essays that accompany the narratives that are contained in this book. Um, she came on board this project at a time um, when I really needed an extra bolt of energy and support, and I will forever be grateful. Thank you so much for the work that you um, put into this book and for the companionship that you provided at that time um, in the genesis of this project. I also want to thank um, Greg Ballinger, who's a Danae illustrator, who um, did the beautiful portraits to accompany all of the narratives. I think it's such a gift to the reader to have one picture to hold in mind as they read the stories um, that this book contains. And Gregory did an incredible job capturing both the look and the spirit, I think, of the people 
um, whose stories are are shared in this book. Um, and finally, I want to thank um, Suzanne and Alyssa Landry, and again, Roseanne Gooding Silverwood, who worked together to put together what I think is an incredible um, companion to this book, um, which I'm so excited to be able to share with educators soon, the educational curriculum, which I hope will help teachers to really bring these narratives into their classrooms and enliven conversations that they may not otherwise know how to have. Um, and I said finally, but I didn't mean finally, because I also want to thank all of the narrators who are not a part of this particular event. Um, you are the heart and the soul of this project. And I look forward to being in conversation with all of you um, over the next few months as you join me um, in other events, sharing this book with the world. So thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, everyone. We uh, really have had an amazing team working on this book and working on the curriculum. Um, before we get started, uh, we're going to be using some terminology today. And we want to ground the conversation first, just by just to make sure that everyone is familiar with these words. Um, Haymarket Books, uh, who's co-sponsoring this launch, will be displaying the terms on screen for you. You should be able to see those. Um, but for those who um, need me to read through, I will also walk you through these. So our first um, bit of terminology is colonization. Colonization refer, refers to both the formal and the informal methods uh, that maintain the subjugation or exploitation of Indigenous peoples, lands, and resources. And by informal methods, we mean behaviors, ideologies, institutions, systems, policies, um, colonial economies. Um, now, generally, colonizers engage in the process of colonization because it allows them to maintain or expand their social, political, and economic power. Um, we're also going to be speaking today about decolonization, uh, decolonization is the intelligent, calculated, and active resistance to the forces of colonialism that perpetuate the subjugation and or exploitation of Indigenous and non-Indigenous minds, bodies, and lands. Ultimately, um, we engage in decolonization for the purpose of overturning the colonial structure and for realizing Indigenous sovereignty and liberation. Uh, we may also mention Indigenization today. Indigenization uh, is the personal and collective process of decolonizing Indigenous life. So all that stuff I just talked about, getting rid of all that, uh, and restoring balance and true self-determination based on pre-colonial Indigenous values. Um, and when we talk about systems, um, then indigenization can refer to um, when institutions of the dominant society include indigenous elements beyond tokenistic gestures of recognition or inclusion, where indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing are practiced as equal to Western ways of knowing. And our last uh, bit of terminology that will likely come up today is sovereignty, which is the exercise of political authority by a particular people or nation. And we want to say that uh, although we all sort of 
made uh, contributions to these definitions that we all agreed on them. They were originally taken, so they've been adapted from uh, the book Indigenous Eyes Only, a decolonization handbook. Um, so uh, I'm going to segue over and hand point over to Sarah again. So with those words in minds and our hearts, I'd like to pass the mic over so that Sarah can speak about how the book came together, um, the importance of oral history, the ethics of oral storytelling, and also the main themes that emerged across the narratives. After Sarah tells us about that process, we're going to transition into a discussion among Sarah, Gladys, and Ashley. Um, so over to you, Sarah. Thank you. Um... So the process to this moment um, has been a long one. <laughs> and Ashley knows this because we first met, I think, maybe seven, six or seven years ago, maybe. Um, the project really had its genesis um, when I moved to New York City to attend um, an oral history master's program here. I arrived knowing that I hope to use oral history to have conversations with um, Native North Americans about their contemporary lives. Um, and very quickly after moving to the city, I started to meet um, fellow students in the New York City community um, who in particular um, were talking about their experience of having left, in this case, Native American reservation communities to come to elite academic institutions and then move home, moving home again to work for their nations. And very quickly, I thought that this was such an interesting story. And I was also kind of getting to know the Native community in New York City. And one of the first people that I met was a man named Rick Shavoya. Um, and I was talking to him about my interest in oral history and my interest in this story in particular. And he's like, well, I'm the guy that you need to talk to because I am somebody who's worked with Native students at these kinds of institutions for many, many, many years. And let me introduce you to some of my um, community members. And one of the very, very first people that he introduced me to was Ashley. Um, and then he introduced me to several other people. Um, and I did pursue that thesis work um, over the period of two years. And I very quickly envisioned that I wanted to put together a book. And so I talked to my um, professors at Columbia and sort of suggested that actually rather than do a traditional thesis format that I would like for my thesis format to be in and of itself a book proposal um, because the people that I was speaking to towards this work including Ashley were such strong narrators and storytellers and educators and it was very clear to me that they could really change the way that um, North Americans understood contemporary North American history, not Native American history, North American history. Um, and it was clear to me that that was needed and that that wasn't something that many of my narrators had access to themselves when they were young and coming up. And it was also very clear to me that it wasn't something that um, most non-Native um, people that I was speaking to had access to. I don't remember where I first read it, but there was there's this idea that for Native Americans to be covered in the mainstream press, they need to be drumming, dancing, dying, or drinking. 
Um, and it was really um, the way that these people like Ashley um, and others were able to narrate their own lives in a larger historical context that referenced their ancestors and a place and a way of being in a place um, was just so rich. And I was convinced that this was going to be a book. So, and I was also convinced um, that it was going to be with Voice of Witness, although they didn't know that yet. Um, <laughs> I like the Voice of Witness books in particular for this project because they're really accessible. They're not scary books, you know, they're really inviting, they look nice. Um, and I also knew about Voice of Witnesses commitment to working with educators. And I really always imagined that that would be the best home for these stories. Um, so I was lucky that I had a friend in my OMA program who had a connection to Cliff Mayotte, who was, is the education, I don't remember his title, but he's the education guy at Voice of Witness. Um, and she sort of suggested that I introduce myself to him. And so I did, I, I walked up to him at an oral history association meeting and, um, pitched the project and he was clearly like interested enough that it emboldened me to, send the materials and to pursue the process. Um, I think probably for many years, they'd been wanting to do a project that explored contemporary Native American lives and issues. Um, and so they were excited about what we could do together as well. Um, we worked for about a year to sort of expand the project's central question away from that specific narrative arc that focused on education um, because they were interested, and I was also interested at that point, in including a greater uh, range of life experiences. So together, over the course of about a year, um, we came to a, agree on a new central question, which was, what is it like to be a citizen of a nation subsumed within a larger nation whose fundamental economic, political, cultural um, desires, goals are so fundamentally opposed? Um, and that new question really allowed us to include a real range of people. Um, we knew that there were specific issues that we absolutely wanted to include. Um, we also knew that we couldn't include every issue. Um, but we came up with a list of ones that were we felt essential, including the intergenerational legacy of the residential school system, um, the high rates of kids in care, um, Native kids in care in both Canada and the United States today, um, issues of environmental justice, um, issues related to treaty violations, the issue of missing murdered women um, and girl, Indigenous women and girls. Um, and so very often, it was a question of knowing, for example, knowing that we, we wanted to um, find somebody who could speak to this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and knowing that in Canada, um, that issue was very tied to where Gladys is from, to the Highway of Tears. Um, we had the issue, then we had the place, and then it was about identifying a person who could really help us to tell that story. Um, and that was sort of how this came together. So for two years, from 2017 to 2019, um, I traveled to Manitoba, to British Columbia, 
to the Southwest, um, Phoenix, the Navajo Nation, Santa Clara Pueblo, to the back to the Dakotas, because I'd been to the Dakotas once for my thesis, um, to Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. Um, on trips home to Toronto, I went to um, Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve, and I interviewed in New York City. And ultimately, um, the book contains 12 of these narratives of, I don't know how many people I interviewed in the end, probably double that. Um, and ultimately, we decided to include these 12. Um, and as I said before, also includes the beautiful essays written by Roseanne. Um and yeah, I'm just so happy to have arrived at this moment and to be looking at these faces of these women that I've come to really know and love and feel like really in community with and so supported by. Um, just happy to be arriving at this moment, getting ready to share the book. Um, as I said, you know, the need for the book um, was clear to me um, at the outset. And it was really reiterated throughout the process, you know, speaking to narrators. Um, like uh, Robert Ornelas, who spoke about how in his own experience growing up in the 60s and 70s, the way that Indigenous people were portrayed in the classroom was that they were not here anymore and that when they had been here, they were savage. Um, and the impact that that had on him, or even more recently speaking to Ashley about how she... Um, she described a moment of going to the library and reading a book about the Holocaust and how she was able to recognize the sort of trauma and the intergenerational impacts um, that was described in this book amongst the Jewish community and then recognize, oh, I'm also seeing this here. But there wasn't a book that was talking about it at that time um, in Indigenous terms. Um, so I feel really excited that this might... Um, I don't know, provide, provide like real, um, a really different experience for young Native kids today. Like, I hope, I hope that this book is going to find them. Um, and then for non-Native audiences, I hope that this will also be a great education for them too. Um, you know, people have, many people have sincerely asked me over the last couple of years, you know, I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to know more about um, why I see some of the hardships that I see in different communities. And also on the flip side, like I want to know how I can be a better ally in the work that I see um, Native people are doing, in the good work that I see Native people are doing. Um, yeah, so thank you. Uh, thanks for all being here today. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful to be in this moment. And I'm going to have a sip of water and then I'm going to ask you, Ashley, a question. So get ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Um, so as I said, I first met Ashley um, many years ago. She was in New York City, and we first met um, in the village apartment of Rick and Anna Shavoya, Ortega Shavoya for Anna. And um, I think Rick made us like tortillas and then left, and we had breakfast. <laughs> sat in his living room and chatted for a couple of hours. Um, and I think we probably got to like you being maybe 12 in that first conversation. Um, and then <laughs> you very generously invited me to come visit you so that we could continue the conversation. Um, and in a great act of generosity, um, you who had only known me for about two hours, picked me up from the Las Vegas airport 
took me to your home, showed me around Vegas because I'd never been there before, um, hosted me in your home. And then the following morning, drove me to Fort Mojave um, to show me around. Um, and I was wondering what I ultimately I would love it if you would speak about um, what you shared in our interviews about how assimilationist policies have impacted many, like multiple generations within your community and your family. Um, but I was also wondering, do you remember that day that you drove me around? And if you do, can you maybe tell everybody what it was that you were trying to share with me? Because I think it's a really, um, it would be a nice way to begin. Yeah, no, thank you, Sarah. Can you hear me okay? I'm kind of getting some background noise. Okay. Yeah, no, I um, I do remember. And it's funny that you kind of mentioned this. I noticed that in planning this event, you mentioned this to a few folks, too, that, you know, you were surprised that I picked after knowing you for a couple of hours and whatnot. But Honestly, that's a value from my um, tribal community. Uh, Rick Chavoya, who is a great friend to a lot of folks, um, when a Mojave takes someone as family, and he's my uncle now, then it, their recommendation is pretty much gold. So in order to honor him, then it was my duty to kind of give that respect to you as a friend. And so... For me, because he's been such a good uncle to me, that was my thank you to him to show you around uh, my community, where I was from and, and what happened. Um, I thought it was really good to take you from Las Vegas into the desert because not a lot of people know that the Mojave people were big traveling people. We traveled throughout most of the Mojave Desert. And so when you think of maps or indigenous maps, um, you have to think about the ancestral homelands of tribal people and not just the reservation homelands of tribal people, because sometimes the reservation homelands of tribal people aren't as large if those tribal people um, didn't stop fighting <laughs> in Fort Mojave. Um, we didn't stop fighting. And so for us, when it comes to kind of assimilation and the different types of termination policies, my, my grandmother, specifically the woman who helped to raise me with my mother, um, was afflicted by three different types of termination policies from the time she was a little girl through the time that she was nearly an adult. And those termination policies included not only just um, residential school, but in the desert, you have to remember during World War II, um, they had termination camps, internment camps for Japanese Americans, Asian Americans, but in a camp, Poston, which is one of the most famous internment camps, they had a war camp called War Camp 2. And that's where they held my grandmother as a little girl before they sent her to residential school. So inside a camp, in an internment camp, was where they kept Native Americans. And I think that that's important to know because not a lot of people understand that history and not a lot of people understand the impact of that. When you even think about how that might affect a family, this is the woman that woke me up every morning to go to school. The woman who, um, you know, made sure I did my homework. The woman who fed me and taught me how to sing and dance and um, taught me how to be who I am today. And she had gone through three separate termination policies, internment, residential school, and then relocation. And so when we think about those three things and we think about the acceleration of history, I thought it was really important that, um, you know, when we took the drive, we started from kind of where 
we believe that we're created and where my people believe that we were given kind of the um the the responsibility to take care of our desert um and to show you that we had to stop when I was 12 years old in New York City because there's no better way to understand it um, unless you kind of envision those places. Being part of my um, geography is instrumental in my belief system. Being next to my river and our water is is sacred to me in a way where sometimes people can understand and it's of who I am. It's not a part of what I follow. It's a part of me in general. And I thought that it was important for you if you were going to understand my story to kind of see these places. Um, because I did give you, you know, a, a piece of um, information that when I came home from the Northeast, I'm a Mojave girl and I hate it the winter. Um, I was planning on staying um, in the Northeast for a few more years to attend um, uh, another university, um, but I made the distinct decision to come home and a lot of my mentors didn't understand why. And for me, visiting a place like Connecticut and New York, it was okay. I found a place, I found some camaraderie, but most recently, one of my mentors that I had spoken to you about they came down for a service project and visited me a couple of years ago. And this was one of the mentors that, you know, took it really hard when I told them that I was coming home. And um, we had a moment when I was standing near our education department and all of the volunteers were around. It was a service project. And he kind of pulled me aside and he said, Ashley, I get it. And I said, what? He goes, I get it. I, I never understood why, but I can see it now. I can see why it was so important for you. In fact, you weren't giving up anything. You were coming home to something more. And I said, yes, now you get it. <laughs> so it kind of helped build that bridge. And I thought that that was important because in order to understand me, you have to understand where I come from. And in order for me to understand myself, I have to understand those things too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Gladys, I want to bring you into the conversation as well. Um, I met Gladys in January of 2018, I believe. Um, and as I said, I, I wanted to speak to her um, because I knew how involved she had been in advocating for families. Um, whose sisters, wives, daughters have been taken, um, murdered along Canada's Highway of Tears and across the country. Um, and just as Ashley was describing, um, there have been many, many policies imposed by both federal governments um, that have led to um, to higher rates of violence experienced in our communities. And I was wondering, Gladys, if you could speak a little bit about how that violence has been experienced and witnessed um, by you. Well, it it did be, thank you, Sarah. Um, it did begin with, uh, with uh, my niece going missing uh, from the Highway of Tears. Uh, Tamara Chipman was a, a young mother of one when she disappeared at 22 years old. And like I knew 
back then that there were missing and murdered women and girls going missing up there. But I, what I didn't know was how many. And so when she went missing and I started hearing the other family members, uh, uh, coming forward and saying, well, my daughter's missing, my, my auntie's missing, my mother's missing. And, you know, that lit a fire in me. And I realized then how many families were being silenced by this phenomenon. And, uh, I decided that I wanted to do something about it in honor of Tamara in honor of all my cousins that that uh, were, you know, like, because we were just starting to be more aware. And uh, when my cousin Florence came up with the idea of the walk, I thought, wow, what a better way to uh, raise awareness. And that's my goal is just to raise awareness. I didn't do this to be, uh, you know, famous or glorified or anything. I wanted to do it for the families because I, I heard the families. I heard firsthand from thousands of family members in the pain that they're in. And you know what? It was time to do something about it. And uh, having a, you know, I've only got a grade 12 education, but, you know, the when I started hearing more and more of the horrific stories and all the other atrocities that have been happening from the residential school, from the germ warfare, from the, you know, being taken away from our families, our children, foster care system, everything, everything just balled up inside of me. And I called it genocide. And that's exactly what it is with all the policies that these governments in in all the Americas against our women, our children, our men and our boys. And it's all about the land. Mm -hmm. It's all about the land because they want to rape the land, too. Mm -hmm. Dislocation. You know, and when the the reason I came up with genocide for the MMIWG is because when you think about it, the average uh, Aboriginal woman will have five children in a lifetime. So for missing, you know, five even five women, we're missing twenty five children for our future generations. That's a lot of people. That's genocide. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take long. Well, it took 11 years, actually, for our public inquiry, national public inquiry. Uh, We had many leadership saying, you'll never get your inquiry. And I would, you know, not not disrespect them, but I would tell them, yes, we are going to get our inquiry. And we did. And that was all done by volunteer and by the family's voices coming alive. Because each of our family members knows what's going on in their community. It's not too hard to figure out who's against us in those communities. Racism and poverty are number one and number two. Can you speak a little bit about how um, Walk for Justice began? how it came together? 
Yes, on uh, December, in December uh, 2007, I was at my brother's uh, place uh, for Christmas, my brother John, and uh, started really thinking, you know, how much, how much my other brother Tom missed Mara at Christmas time, you know, and uh, I was thinking about the things that had happened since Tamara had gone missing. And that was virtually nothing. Uh, I know in 2006, March 2006, they had a symposium up in Prince George, B.C. And to date, that's one of the best that I've been to where it was actually the family's voices that were coming out. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm listening to the news and I'm listening to these reports. I'm listening to the, uh, the government saying, well, we're not going to do anything about the high wave tears recommendations. And you know, we had a, we had a government that was in power uh, two sessions and she had, she wanted nothing to do with the high wave tears or implementing the 33 recommendations that the families made again you know it's the families that are putting these reports together legwork is already done we know what's needed in our communities mm-hmm. it even took them 10 years to get even one recommendation for the shuttle bus service mm-hmm. you know and uh, so when I saw that nothing was being done about those recommendations I I was thinking about Florence and her walk and how she organized it and everything. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if we should walk to Ottawa from Vancouver. And uh, I had in mind that because the, the most prominent message I was getting from all the families at that time was that we need a national public inquiry. So I went home. On January 3rd, and I, I phoned my friend Bernie Williams, and uh, I told her, I said, so what do you think about us uh, walking to Ottawa for, the, for a national public inquiry? And she just said, well, let's not talk about it. Let's do it. So... <laughs> It was kind of a foolish gesture in reality because between the two of us, we didn't even have a vehicle. We had no idea. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm an amputee, and uh, at that time, Bernie wasn't working, so we didn't know how we were going to get this done. But we ended up talking to other family members. We ended up. You know, just, you know, and then we put a we put a page out there. We were open to taking donations because how are we going to get there? How are we going to walk? So miraculous, miraculously uh, from January 2008 until June 2008, we managed to uh, get a vehicle. We had the van, which was called War Pony, and we started putting pictures all over the van. And at that time, I think there was 131 pictures of missing and murdered loved ones. And we lined it with really bright duct tape, so you can't miss it. That was the whole idea. When I put Tamara's picture on the front, I thought, wow, what a way to raise awareness. And 
so we got our first donation actually uh, a cash donation sizable cash donation the day before we left thanks Gladys yeah it's really beautiful and everyone should look up the war pony you can find pictures of it online um I wanted to ask both of you um, why you chose to participate um, in this project and what it was like for you um, to participate. Because what I've now come to um, often do when I'm going to interview someone is I'll send them um, a narrative that I put together from a different interview so that they have a sense of the magnitude of the ask. Um, because I think, you know, many of us may have been interviewed before for a, by a journalist or for a piece, and maybe we've shared our thoughts or anecdotes. Um, but sitting down for this kind of interview, um, it's a much bigger share. Um, and so I was wondering if both of you would speak a little bit about um, why you chose to participate. Ashley, I was wondering if um, you recently wrote a letter to accompany our um, education toolkit, uh, and it was a beautiful letter. and. I was wondering if maybe you could share some of what you wrote about what you hoped that readers might um, take from your story. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have the letter in front of me. I'm not prepared. So, <laughs> but uh, I, I guess to to your question, um, I'm a very private person, and not too many people know that about me. Um, but. I decided to share and we were this project for us happened many years ago. And when we uh, came to uh, when we came to my homeland, I I kind of felt out Sarah a little bit, too. Like, are you going to be the person who just wants to hear the cliff notes? Are you going to be the person who's looking for something specifically salacious so you can talk about Indian issues and you know, go on uh, a platform to talk about certain things, or are you interested in what really happens? And I think it's very important for these types of narratives, um, or their, for their to be the um, the editor has to be open to actually hearing the story. Because if you're giving an interview, um, you can kind of fill through those things. I mean, for me, I've been a part of certain um, times in my life where people have tried to interview me about um, whether it was the Ward Valley standoff or, you know, being the only Mojave that was in a certain place or, you know, being so young and in certain situations. Um, but I think what made this feel authentic and real to me was that the um, person that I was talking to was actually interested in what happened, not the Cliff Notes version, but the real, you know, it's not this way all the time. I don't sit here and think about colonization all the time. I enjoy my family. <laughs> when I go to ceremony, I go because I want to go to ceremony, not because I'm you know, I'm, I'm the first person to be out there. You know, I even find me at different protests or what have you. But I, I go because that's who I am. And I thought that you had a genuine interest in, in what that meant for me and what that meant for my my family. Now, I will tell you, I did get the book in a mail. So I got the book in the mail and I do have um, 
the sincere blessing of being able to um, live and spend time with my mother and my grandmother. And that's something super precious to me. You know, we're on COVID lockdown here on our reservation. And so my family has made a dedicated decision to keep my grandmother safe. She's, you know, in her, her late 80s. And so, you know, we were watching CNN wondering, oh, what's America doing now? <laughs> right. And um, kind of saying, see what happens, you know, but I mean, all of those things happen. And and so my mom was like, hey, you got some mail. And I said, okay, um, what's going on? Is the package? She goes, oh, it's another book, probably from Amazon, because I have stacks and stacks of books everywhere. And I got nervous when I saw the book come in because I realized, oh no. And and I don't know why I was nervous because my mom, my grandma, they know who I am. I, I say it to children on my reservation all the time so that they can be proud of who, who they are, so that they know if they don't have much, it's okay, that you can be whatever you want to be and that you can live in this type of house and it's still an acceptable house because that's the house I still live in, you know, like those types of things. Um, but I was nervous that my first instinct was how do I protect them, right? So I'm like, okay, well, how do I protect them from myself? Like, how do I protect them from this? And so then I open it to the, to the, um, to the, the first chapter and um, I saw the illustration. It was very important for the illustration of, the, of my mother and my grandmother to be standing with me because those three generations are important to who I am today. And so all of a sudden my mom was like, oh, I'm in a book. And she's like crying and like all excited. And, you know, my grandma, she's, um, she's very excited. But I noticed that I was nervous about my story. And my mom told me, you should never be nervous about telling your story because if you're telling your story, you're not going to hurt us because we know it's real and people need to know that. And so when you think about, you know, when I thought about, okay, <laughs> how do I share? Um, I guess the surprising emotion that I felt was, you know, fear and wanting to protect my family. And that's something that I didn't even realize would happen when, when I saw the book on. Um, so, you know, it kind of goes to your point about, the big ask that you have for your interviewees, because I think by the time we finished with my narrative in you know my apartment, both of us had cried. We had to take moments, you know, and I was like, man, maybe I need therapy. Like I don't know. Like <laughs> so, so, so it, it it was a big, you know, it was a big uh, uh, a big uh, project, um, but it was it was a good project, and I think that for me what I wrote in the letter to the voice of witness folks for educators is just an ask for those children and for teachers to think about the idea that there are multiple perspectives to teach from multiple perspectives to learn from. And when they honor that, then they honor voices like mine or voices like Gladys or voices like her niece, because these are our experiences and we can only share them to people who are ready to listen. Thank you, Ashley. Um, Gladys, I was hoping that you might answer um, the same question. Um, what was the experience like for you and how did you decide um, to participate? 
Well, my my reason for participating is because I think it's important to uh, to uh, educate everybody about this issue that's happening in Canada, particularly the Highway of Tears, because um, you know these things are happening everywhere, but. You know, things get misconstrued when people talk about the Highway of Tears and they uh, sometimes they even mistake it for the Trail of Tears. That's how much care they've given to what they've heard. So I think it's important that uh, that we educate uh, the general public on what is really going on, not just on the Highway of Tears, but for all the missing and murdered women, Canada side and state side. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you really think about it, even one woman is too many, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, our women continue to go missing even today as we speak uh, at, at the same alarming rates, you know, but, you know, the thing is we need to talk about it and our families are tired of being silenced. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm hoping that the education field will bring our families' voices out there again, because the more people that know about it, the better. And the more allies that we get, the better chance that we have to end all these violences against Aboriginal women and girls. Thanks, Um, I think, Suzanne, I'm going to invite you to come back into this conversation and maybe we'll broaden this out a little bit. Okay. Thank you. Um, And thank you, Sarah, Gladys and Ashley, for sharing your thoughts on these issues and and some more of your stories. Um, I'm going to let your words settle within me. I hope everyone who's listening will do the same. Um, Thank you for your brilliance, your honesty, and the hard work that you do in the world, all of you. Uh, So yeah, we're going to transition now, as Sarah said, into a group discussion where all four of us answer a variation on a single question related to the book, what does it mean to go home? There is incredible diversity among Indigenous peoples and communities, so the answers will be different for all of us. Um, I'll moderate this group discussion and I'm going to start with Sarah as editor of the book. So Sarah, what does it mean for you to go home? Second question, did this book project answer the question for you? Um, You know, when I was thinking about this question, I had actually forgotten where the title um, came from. And then I remembered, and I don't know if you remember this, Ashley, but um, it was actually in a conversation with you. Do you remember this? Kind of, yeah. (laughs) I genuinely did not remember, but now I'd like to thank Ashley for the title of the book. Um, We were having dinner, I think, the end of the day that you drove me around uh, Fort Mojave. And 
I was asking you, I think you were, you had told me um, about some of the mentors and some of the educators, um, as you just shared, who were really disappointed and left. And I, I must have asked you something like, well, what do you say to them about why you go home? And you were like, well, actually, it's not why we go home. It's how we go home. Um, because it was never going to be anything different. I was always going to come home. So it was really always about how I was going to do it. Um, and I, it was so funny. It was such a like oral history moment where I had this like, aha, this new memory of this old, this encounter that we had. And I really hadn't remembered that that was the origin of the title. Um, so I think for me, um, you know, that was initially the title describing a very specific physical return to a place because the people that I was um, speaking to for my thesis were people like Ashley who had physically left a place and then were physically returning to a place. Um, but as I started to interview more broadly, it just seemed like it was a title that worked for everybody, um, including myself, my own experience. Um, I grew up in Toronto. Um, my father is Peguis Nation, and he grew up in Winnipeg. Um, and he has shared stories about how he was one of seven boys, and his father um, attended residential school and really like came out of that experience with a lot of shame about um, who he was. And so my father actually wasn't raised even knowing that he was Native until um, he told me a story. I don't remember how old he was, but he grew up in a big family and people were not always around, but I think a group of cousins had come over to play one day and they were playing cowboys and Indians. And my dad was saying his, um, he and his brothers always wanted to be the cowboys. And um, his cousins were like, you guys know you're Indians, right? Um, so I think the process of going home really started with my father um, and how he kind of worked to claim. Uh, and, that, and that recovery also happened for my grandfather later in his life. Um, so it began with my father. And when we were kids growing up in Toronto, he was always involved um, in different Indigenous community in the city. But I think because we grew up away from our Native family who were in Manitoba, I was never sure how much I was allowed to belong. You know, I never knew how much I could see how much I was allowed is the more um, you learn <laughs> and you learn about like the history and the very intentional dispossession of knowledge and attack on family um, and the intergenerational impacts of the residential school system and how that was on purpose, you know, um, then I realized, well, of course I'm allowed to belong. Um, and that gave me um that gave me license to start my own path of learning. Um, and I still feel like, I feel like how we go home is it's, it's like a journey. It's not, it's never going to be, there's not an end to it. Right. It's a lifelong journey. And I see even within my own family, the way that 
I have two sisters. The way that each of us pursues that is really different. You know, my youngest sister has been attending ceremonies for years with our cousins and has been learning the language and is learning craft. And I would love to do that one day. And maybe that will be, you know, the next chapter of my journey. But so far, my journey has been um, learning history and sitting with people like Ashley and Gladys, who, although they come from different communities, have helped me to learn a lot about what we share. Um, Yeah, so that's what it is for me. So I hear in that that going home is really about creating community for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, creating a sense of belonging, I think. Um, which is emboldened by a better understanding of history and relationships. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Um, I want to turn now to the narrators. Um, Gladys, as a community organizer, what does it mean for you to go home? And I'm interested to know, too, you know, for you, where is home? Because I know in your narrative, you speak about, you know, having to leave Terrace and now you're back in Terrace, but you're also doing this community work. Uh, you know, what has the response been and does it make it better or worse? All of that stuff. So where is home and what does it mean to to go home for you? Terrace is my home. And uh I when I left Terrace when I was a little girl and I went away for a while and then I've always come back to Terrace though. Um, I wasn't born here. I was uh, I've been institutionalized. I was born about two hours up the road in a place called Morristown. And uh, so being institutionalized, so I never did really know where my home was. And, uh, but Terrace has, has the most roots for me, um, due to family. And, uh, I lived here in Terrace, uh, in the mid eighties again for a while and then moved down to Vancouver. I've been a gypsy. I've been wandering. So I, for the longest time, I really didn't know where home was, you know, because of different circumstances in my life and, you know, and different different things that have happened that uh, when I got into my accident, my, my home then was Calgary, you know. So, and yeah, I've, I've lived in, I didn't realize how much I moved around until um, I was thinking about it just a, about a month ago when I realized, holy smokes, <laughs> did I ever move around in my life? <laughs> and uh, yeah. I was just always on the go, but uh, what triggered me is uh, to come back home to Terrace again was my family. My my uh, the majority of my family are in Terrace, as, as in my my daughters and my grandchildren, my immediate family, and I also have uh, my brother and and sister that live in Terrace, and. Um, went through a lot of uh, different roads to get where I am to to make that decision also to come home. Uh, actually, it was uh, in, when I was uh, living in Ontario, I had a heart attack and had uh, quadruple bypass surgery. So I figured, oh, well, it's time to go home. 
And I really had to think about where home was, and that was in Terrace. That was to be with my children and my grandchildren, uh, where the majority of them are. And uh, it was, you know, it was a tough decision for me, you know, because of circumstances that happened in my life. And, and um, but no regrets, of course. Now I get to see my children and my grandchildren growing up and, you know, my girls and my 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 boy they all have families and the thing is um my youngest granddaughter or uh, not my youngest granddaughter my 14 year old granddaughter was the youngest walker we had she was two when she started walking with us so yeah so she and she she participated in five of my walks and her name is angel angelica but uh you know um, so she was raised with, uh, you know, the, the knowing, uh, about all of the issues that we talk about. And, um, I think it's important uh, for me, it was important that I, that I come home and, and be with them to educate the, the younger kids too, and the grandchildren just to know that they are precious and that they, um, I don't want to see their pictures on my car. <laughs> you know, I had to come home. Hmm. And what is it like living in a community where you're also, you know, uh, speaking up and speaking out has, what's the response been? Um, the, the response for the totem pole project that we just did is really, really well. Uh, as you know, we were, uh, you know, really affected by the COVID. So the totem pole is up and we're getting really good response from it, uh, particularly from the family members who stop by and then they take pictures and they, you know, they, they express their gratitude for this beautiful pole that's there to commemorate their loved ones. I think it's appreciated. I'm I'm pretty much a homebody. I do most of my work online or on the phone or, you know, I don't I don't go out that often. But uh, I've got um, for the totem pole project, I totally had a dream team that uh, that helped me put that together. And uh, the Carvers and his family and his his mother and his dad. And like, it was a family affair, <laughs> really. But uh, the thing is, you know, that was the end result of the vision from the walks doing that totem pole project. And uh, I do believe that the creator had a great big hand in that because uh, the place that it's situated was the exact place that I wanted it in my vision. And I never expressed that to anybody. And one day, all of a sudden, my friend Arlene told me, well, my honey's been working, working hard on this and we've got a place for you to put the totem pole. And when she took me out to that pullout, I was just floored because that's exactly where I envisioned it. But the community is very much accepting it, uh, particularly the uh, families, and that was that that was who it's for. It's for the families. 
Thank you. It's good to hear you say that because some of the narrators, um, and I know this myself, I've experienced it, where, you know, the legacy of colonization also sometimes means that there can be, you know, lateral violence in our communities. And so I want to remind anybody who's listening that, you know, it's never just one story, right? But there is also so much community and so much support and so much love and so many like chosen families as well and extended families and structures. So um, thank you for mentioning that because there is so much of that that we are sharing and also recreating as well. Um, so let's turn to Ashley. Um, Ashley is a graduate of an Ivy League university. What does it mean for you? You talked a little bit about being in the Northeast and then going home and your reasons for that. Um, So if you want to talk about that, um, you know, add anything to it. But I really want to know how the work you do also advances the sovereignty of your nation and the fact that you've gone home to do that work. um, What does it mean for you to go home? Well, I mean, for me, I do remember that conversation in my car. We were leaving. um, I think we were leaving the park. And um, I think Sarah writes a little bit about it as well, um, because there there were two little girls that played in a park that had been rebuilt in my community. And, um, you know, the story always goes, well, this is why you come back to your community to kind of build, you know, rebuild a nation or, you know, that's kind of what those heavy tribal nations rebuilding books look like, right? We've kind of probably read through most of them. But what they don't tell you is the nitty gritty, right? And so for me, I got to an Ivy because I didn't even know that I was going to go to college. And I had to figure out how to be good in a world that didn't want me. And so I didn't know anything about on an Ivy place. (laughs) I had to research that. I just, you know, I found out, okay, well, what's the college? What's the best college? And how do I get there so that, you know, these people can listen to me and, and that, you know, I can say, Hey, something's up here. Like this is, has to be something else. Like everyone can't be living like this, (laughs) you know, like there can't be all this extra in everyone else's world. No one seems panicked or anxious or hungry or, you know, all of these things. And so, you know, going to an Ivy was way different for me. It was almost like a way for me to get inside a system that I knew wasn't meant for me. And so when I got there, yeah, it was shocking, you know, seeing how other people had lived. I, I was shocked. Um, you know, I, I, um, my first year was very hard in um, the Northeast. One, because I'm a Mojave girl. Two, because it's 130 here. It's like 100 degrees today. And three, because I'm not used to rain and it rained a lot. You know, like I, I, when, when it rains here, I, I waited out. I'm kind of like one of my best friends from Yale, you know, we met because I was looking out the window waiting for the rain to stop so I can go out on my my day. And he was like, it's not going to stop. Like you better put on a jacket and come this way, you know? So (laughs) those are the things, those are my experiences with, with that world and why it was so important for me to, you know, make the distinction between why go home and how go home is because for me, I was very, um, I'm very grateful for my grandmother's strength in making sure she 
taught me where and why it was important to know where I come from because I don't belong to myself. I belong to my people and my people belong to the desert. And so even if I'm not practicing in our tradition, then my tribe, they'll come and get me if something happens to me. They'll do what they're supposed to do if something happens to my family. And we're one of five tribes that are still allowed in North America to practice our traditional rite ceremonies. We take care of our bodies completely. We had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to make sure that they wouldn't take that away from us. But we went there because it is important for the Mojave to care for them, not only when we're born, but when we walk on. So no one can handle my body except a tribal person, except a tribal person from a specific family. So if something's missing or if something's gone, yeah, these these stories are important to me. When you talk about missing and murdered indigenous women, you're talking about my family, my relatives. And I have I have a responsibility to know where those women are. That's why it's not just an awareness walk, because we have a responsibility for our people. And how I go home every day is reminding people in my community that you matter, that I matter, that their children matter, because so many people talk about us not mattering. Oh, no, we don't need you. We talked about sovereignty. We don't need your comment on consultation. Oh, we have science for that. We don't care what you're listening to. Oh, we have laws for that. We don't care how you participate. Oh, yeah, send us a letter. No, those are how I come home because no one's trying to listen to me. And quite frankly, I don't think that they're going to want to, but it's my duty as a Mojave to protect what I'm supposed to protect. And, you know, luckily I I can do that now. You see how much energy I have. So all of my other tribal members have the same amount of energy. It doesn't mean we're it's all unicorns and glitter. I mean, we we agree to disagree and sometimes we don't agree to disagree. And it's a very, you know, big thing. So I have friends from others who find find it harder to re-enter their home to re-enter their community and who aren't given those opportunities to work in government like I'm, I am. And so I keep those in mind because sometimes they don't have access points, right? I, I'm a Southwest tribe. We're in California, Arizona, Nevada. There's 1,400 Mojaves, Fort Mojaves in the world because of these termination policies. There's the there's a separation that happened between the Northern Mojave and the Southern Mojave that no one really talks about, but that happened. And so that's why there's only 1,400 people who are like me in this whole world. And when you think of that, that was less than every, that was less than most of my graduating class at Yale. <laughs> right. So it's hard to not feel like a little collectible Indian sometimes. Right. So for us, it when I think about how do I go home, it's how do I continue to remember? How do I continue to share? And what am I bringing forward so others can can share, too? And that's why that's why things like this are important to me, no matter how much it's such a, a different experience for me. Oh. Amazing. Thank you. And I, I want you to run for dominant society politics, please. You just, <laughs> just rule us all, Ashley, please <laughs> give you that. <laughs> um, now we said this discussion would be among the four of us. So I'm going to chime in at the end here. Um, that for me, Suzanne, 
home is ancestral territory, um, but I live every day with the knowledge that I will probably never be able to physically live there. Um, my nation was removed from the area around what is now known as Jasper National Park. Um, we refused treaty twice. Uh, there are some non-status, non-treaty communities still in the mountains. Um, but, uh, you know, my mother grew up, you know, the product of a mixed race relationship that was not uh, cemented by, you know, paperwork uh, such as marriage. And so she grew up on the Scottish side of my, my lineage. So, you know, I don't really have connections to my ancestral community except people that I've met, you know, in other places like Edmonton, Alberta, or like other First Nations. So that removal from territory for, for me, um, you know, I just spent the last 29 years living in Toronto, which is, um, you know, Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe territory. And it allowed me to learn about Haudenosaunee tradition, which was really good because the Haudenosaunee um, historically married into the Rocky Mountain Cree when they guided um, explorers and um, traders here. Um, so that was really good. I, I love the fact that, uh, like Gladys, I seem to have lived in almost every part of the country. Um, you know, I went to school, University of East, and, and um, so this idea of home has always been this sort of place that now, I did grow up in the northernmost part of my mother's territory in a place we call Segatawa in our language. Uh, in English, it's known as Peace River, Alberta. So, I mean, I know the northernmost part and I know the peace country and, and that's what speaks to me in my heart. But there's no way I would ever willingly go back to northern Alberta to live because of the oil, the gas, the fracking, the coal, what they're doing with resource extraction right now. Um, uh, they have a right-wing homophobic government in the province of Alberta. I, I cannot actually um, return to the place where I'm from. It's not possible. So living with that reality, well, you can't live there, right? So how do you go home. So for me, um, I mean, I did realize I needed to get out of the city, needed to leave Toronto. It was changing and get back to the mountains and the sea. I was born in Vancouver. So that happens. That's why I'm in BC right now. Home is inside of me. Home is inside of me in the stories that I've recreated um, and remembered. And I mean, like re-embodying, remembered, right? Um, because being on the land, anywhere in the land, helps me get in touch with my ancestral stories and with my spirit folk, right? So it's the connection to land and ceremony to me. So I'm glad that I've um, found a place on Snanamuk territory. Um, and, you know, creating a healing narrative by connecting with the land um, has also helped me create a healing narrative where I now feel at home inside my body, which for many survivors of childhood trauma, um, you know, the dissociation can be 
a thing that we carry into adulthood, right? So connecting with the land, connecting with ancestral story, um, feeling at home inside my body, letting the land teach me to do that, teaching me all of these lessons that I've only learned as an adult because I didn't grow up in my territory um, or with a mother who knew anything about her past. Um, so lessons about balance and consequence and responsibility, um, that to me, all of that connection and coming together and creating a whole out of something that was so once so fragmented, that has become uh, my sense of home stories. And the land, although it might not be my ancestral land. So, um, then, um, I, while you were speaking, I wondered if um, this actually might also be a nice way to transition into the work that you do as an educator. Um, because I guess part of my hope with the educational um, curriculum and materials, and I wonder if you see it the same way, is that these stories can help other people to go home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you yeah. Talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I think that when I write my curriculum, my curriculum, the curriculum, uh, for any project that I'm on, and especially for this project, you know, I have to be of two minds. I'm writing for a non-Indigenous audience, of course, but I'm also writing for Indigenous students, whether they've self-declared in the classroom or not, and many do not. <laughs> Whenever an educator says, oh, I don't have any Native kids in my class, I would say, yeah, you actually probably do, <laughs> given that the highest percentage of us are based in urban environments, and that goes for both Canada and the U.S. Um, so I think this book and these stories can be a process of reclamation for Indigenous students. And so when I wrote the curriculum, I really wrote it with a frame of mind of of, of taking that look at it through the lens of decolonization so that Indigenous students could feel like, I am seen here. This is true to me. It feels right. I don't feel like someone's discussing me in the past. I feel like we start with the present day and these stories and all the other resources that are in the lessons. So yeah, I think um, the curriculum is, is a way for Indigenous students to, to reclaim as well. But also, though, to dismantle myths and stereotypes and assumptions, the learning that it's going to provide for non-Indigenous people and for teachers as well. So, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, should we say, do you have more questions, Sarah, or should I just tell people that the uh, lessons are available for download, by the way, on the Voice of Witness website? Yeah. website, and I think they're available as of today, yes? I think so. Yes. I think it went live today. Um, and I want people to know that there is a preface for educators in those, in that curriculum so with the lessons, um, because I know that it's a big jump, right. Uh, for many non-Indigenous teachers to get into this material to feel confident you know so there's a whole bunch of information and there's resources about how to prepare for teaching the lessons and thinking about the larger connections between the narrations and the issues the themes so that you know you don't get into silos right familiarizing yourself with the history that has been hidden in the americas um and feeling like okay i sort of 
feel grounded enough to, to be able to teach this, right? Um, considering things like trauma-informed teaching, if, you know, you're talking about something um, if from one of the narrations or that happened in history and, you know, you want to prepare your students for that. Um, terminology, establishing safe learning spaces, um, decolonizing your pedagogy, um, strengthening relationships with Indigenous students, all of that is there. So um, I'm, I'm really happy that you chose Voice of Witness, Sarah, to publish this book because mm -hmm. they have such an education forward approach to the projects that they publish that we are able to have this amazing curriculum that will go out into the world mm -hmm. and do its work. Yeah, you really did a beautiful job. I'm, I'm so excited about this component. I think it's so strong, so yeah. Yeah, well, thanks. Now, we wanted to end with questions, right? So we'd like to invite questions from everyone in attendance. Um, you can use the chat function to ask Gladys, Ashley, Sarah, or me a question. Um, now, the folks over with Haymarket Books will be uh, organizing the chat. I believe that's Dana. Um, so let's see what we've got coming in. Uh, oh, we've got lots. And oh, I'm also seeing, this is great. I'm also seeing the land acknowledgements that came in um, from the chat as well. So we have, whoa, we have people from, yeah, all around. Like, and I'm not going to try to murder the uh, languages. So I will not try to actually <laughs> say them, but all over the Americas. Um, and, oh, and I also have a, um, uh, a little chat reminder here that some of our narrators um, are watching uh, the event uh, today. So we're joined by Gladys and Ashley, but we also have some narrators, including Robert Ornelas, uh, who are watching with us. So hi and thank you. Um, so yes, we've got a bunch of questions. Let's start with, uh, ooh, here's a good one from Ryan Kincaid. Question is, is there a resource, map, or website that can help us figure out what groups of Indigenous people lived where and currently and where that is? So I guess this relates to land acknowledgements. And I know one source. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, nativeland.ca. Yeah. That's what you're thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of local uh, post-secondary institutions, also Ryan and everyone, um, a lot of uh, the post-secondary institutions have designed a land acknowledgement for their institution. So if you have one nearby, check that. Um, and I know in Canada, I don't know about the states, but in Canada, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, so the CAUT, has an online, and it's a living document. It's, it's always updated. I mean, you can download it, I think, but they're always updating it. Um, and because, of course, it's a national focus in Canada, that CAUT um, document contains land acknowledgements for all the places that there are universities in Canada uh, and colleges as well. So that covers a lot of territory as well. And I don't know if there's an American equivalent, though. So 
I don't know if there's an American equivalent, but if you want to do like a quick kind of search of federal recognized Indian tribes, the Department of Interior always has a resource link and a resource tab of those federal tribes. And you can always click on their websites, tribal websites. They maintain them. Um, a lot of tribes have their own cultural centers and museums in the area. Um, and it's always good to check with their um, tribal preservation offices. One really fun thing is that Google during their kind of Google mapping system in 2010 included the Indian reservation road system, which didn't happen before. And so with that, um, you can kind of see tribal homelands if you're in Google Maps, um, just depending if you want to kind of fumble around and say like reservation near me or anything like that, just some insider tips for you. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, so we have, oh, we have all, we have such good questions. We're going to try to do them all because we still get time. So here's one from Jin Zhu. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Jin. Um, the question is, how can readers or others interested in oral history show allyship? Who wants to take that? <laughs> Don't all volunteer at once. <laughs> I'll take a stab at it. Have <laughs> readers interested in oral history show allyship? Yeah, so it seems to be pretty specific. It's not just allyship because, you know, we could always post, um, and we should, I suppose, afterwards in the comment box or something when it gets posted to YouTube, we can actually post some online um, toolkits that I know uh, about allyship. But in terms of oral history, I think maybe, Sarah, you are the best positioned. Um, I don't know if I understand the question. Um, I think if you're interested in being an ally to these particular stories, um, then there is a section in the book with um, some action outcomes, um, starting kind of knowing more about where you are. So visiting a site like nativeland.ca, which does actually also include maps of the United States. Um, so even if you're in the States, it would tell you what traditional territory you're on. And then beyond that, you know, knowing more about the history of the area that you're in and becoming an ally, you know, knowing about um, the Native organizations around you, knowing what they're doing, knowing what Indigenous people around you are advocating for, getting involved, supporting, supporting local government, um, giving, donating to different causes, giving land back. Um, there are many, many things. <laughs> Um, that you can do to be an ally to Indigenous people. Um, being an ally to oral history, I don't know, if you want to learn more about oral history, I think Voice of Witness has some really great introductory resources for how you might use oral history to amplify the stories that you're interested in amplifying. And you can visit uh, Voice of Witness's website to find those tools. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Um, oh, we got more rolling in. Uh, I don't know if this person is a Spanish speaker. So is it Hector or Hector? Uh, Hector G. Uh, question is, what is the role of non-colonizer settlers in decolonization? Very good question. Because is colonization only something that happened in the past? I think we have to ground this question in what exactly we mean by non-colonizer settlers. Uh, who wants to jump in on that? <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> 
Ashley, what do you, can I make it more specific and say like, how can settlers support you in the work that you're doing to build your tribe's um, sovereignty? Yeah, I mean, I think amplification is great, right? Understanding kind of where you are, understanding, not only understanding and acknowledging kind of the land that you're on, but also being active in the present, right? Actively, you know, um, actively finding options to support amplification of native voices. Now, what does that mean? So I don't know where this non-colonized settler person is, um, but I would say to give a very real example, right? Um, we do in my nation, we're in three states, we do a our local community because we understand that just because people make boundaries doesn't mean that, you know, just because nations make boundaries doesn't mean that people do. So we have to build bridges across those things. And when we talk about specifically like public health these days, right, with this global pandemic affecting us, you know, global pandemics aren't new to Indian country, right? Your first book, in any type of Indian country book is like, oh man, the settlers came and the natives died because of disease, right? That's usually how the history goes. <laughs> so this isn't our first rodeo when it comes to pandemic, but in terms of becoming an ally or cooperating with the tribal government, understanding that it's not our first rodeo, that these pandemics afflict certain populations in a different way. So when people ask you to wear a mask, wear a mask. You know, those are types of of ways where if you're a non-intruder colonizer, then you understand that sometimes diseases come to this land that aren't associated with America. And for whatever reason, you may not have brought them, but you can be part of the action to protect everyone here while you're here visiting and while you're here taking care of the land that we're supposed to be taking care of. So if you're not giving us our land back and you decide you want to stay, then I suggest that you respect it and respect it in a way that can be a true allyship and and that's a very real example of how people can do a small part, you know, take small steps to do a very large part in bridging those relationships between people. Mm-hmm. Once again, sheer brilliance. Um, I have to move on because of our time, but like, I want to talk more about that, but I have to move on to the next question, which uh, is also from Ryan. Um, I first heard, so I guess this is for Gladys. I first heard about missing and uh, abducted, murdered Indigenous women and girls in an online class recently. So Ryan would like to know, is there something we can do to combat this or and or to spread awareness? Excuse me. Um, the way to combat it is really difficult because um, of all the root causes, such as uh, you know policing and and stuff like that. But um, I think uh, one thing that um, is really important is that when a woman goes missing, usually it's the families that are out searching for themselves. And you know what? Go out and help them. There's a lot of things that are needed when when our loved ones go missing. We need, you know, things like uh, even simple things like meals for the for the searchers and gas for the searchers and the for because the majority of them are volunteers. And uh, so, you know, when you do hear about somebody that is gone missing, you know, help us help us find them before it's too late. 
Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, missing and murdered women, um, that's where the families are usually lost at that time, too. And usually we can't afford to go out and pay people to do this, that and everything else. So, you know, be of service to the families and and by all means, light your sage as well. And, you know, just pray for everybody. We need lots of prayers because there's far too many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, now, there's a few more questions, but we have run out of time. We need to respect everyone's time. People might have to move on. So uh, we can try, I guess, to maybe answer these in the comment section on the on YouTube. Um, or, you know, all of us are also contactable, too. Is that a word? Sarah has a website. I have a website. Feel free to engage in further conversations. Um, for now, because our time is done, I just want to thank everyone for their questions, number one, um, and for your participation um, and for taking the time to listen and to hear I want to thank uh, Gladys, Ashley, and Sarah for, you know, coming together and being such awesome Indigenous women um, and for this discussion that we've been able to share. Uh, Thank you to, you know, Haymarket and Voice of Witness and our Canadian distributors, Fernwood, uh, for getting the book out there. This is a really important book. Please tell everybody you know about it and any educators you know about it and the curriculum. Um, And I guess for now, we have to say in my language, we say thank you, uh, saying hi, hi. Uh, so thank you everyone for attending. Uh, thank you, ladies. Thank you. thank you, Gladys, Ashley, and Suzanne. Yeah, be thank well. Thank you very much. Thank you for the stage, Gladys. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> be well, everyone, and we will see you all again sometime. I'm sure. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.